0: morning. We continue this morning in our summer series on the local church. And so before we begin, let me just recap where we've been the last several weeks. Three weeks ago we started by establishing uh, what the church is, right? The church is God's precious people uh, purchased and preserved by Christ. Uh, Two weeks ago we saw that the primary thing that happens, the most important thing that happens. When God's people gather together as the church is the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Then last week we talked about those whom God has appointed to lead the church by means of that word. Uh, Elders, uh, aka overseers, aka bishops, aka pastors. We talked about the office of elders, uh, that elders are plural, that elders are male, uh, that elders are human. That is that the elder's authority must be uh, understood, relativized under God's authority since elders are only human. Uh, But at the same time, elders mediate God's authority. And so to the extent that elders are leading the church uh, according to the word of God, well, the church is called to submit to their authority. Then we talked about the function of elders. That elders shepherd the flock of God by preaching and teaching the word of God. Uh, by protecting them from false teaching, and uh, leading in all things pertaining to the life of the church. Today we're going to continue on that topic of elders by focusing on the qualifications of elders. Uh, And given the importance of elders in the life of the church, uh, both in their office and in their function, uh, it only makes sense that God would provide certain qualifications for them. And so this morning we're primarily going to be in two different chapters of the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to be in Titus chapter 1 uh, where we find those elder qualifications. It is good that uh, God gives us two similar lists in two different letters uh, because that tells us that these are qualifications not just unique to uh, Timothy's situation in Ephesus where he was or Titus' situation on the island of Crete where he was, Uh, But these can be considered as universal qualifications for the leadership of all biblical churches. And so if you would please open your Bibles uh, to 1st Timothy chapter 3. I think you will be helped if you have uh, your Bible open to 1st Timothy 3. But then your finger in Titus chapter 1, that's just a a few pages over. uh, We're going to be flipping back and forth between those two chapters. So let me give you the game plan for... This morning, uh, first I'm going to make uh, two kind of big picture observations about elders uh, that we have to understand before we look at any qualifications. And then using 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, we're going to look at two abilities, uh, two things that the elder qualified man must be able to do. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at ten things that the elder must be, right, character tra- traits or Uh, descriptions of the elder qualified man. Then I'll finish by giving you some application points. Now you might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, I'm never going to be an elder, and so this sermon really has nothing for me. Maybe you're tempted to to tune out. Uh, If that's you, let me tell you two things. Uh, First, uh, even if you're never going to be an elder, just as a faithful church member... Uh, you need to know what the qualifications of biblical leadership are uh, because you are responsible, uh, at least in part, for the leadership of your church. And second, even if you're never going to be an elder, just as a faithful Christian, uh, you should study these qualifications as marks of spiritual maturity. Like these are things that every single believer in the room should be striving for. Uh, If we had time, we could go through each and every one of these qualifications and show how the New Testament commands it, uh, at least to some degree, in all believers. And so these lists are a very helpful way for us to kind of gauge our own spiritual maturity, uh, our own spiritual progress, uh, regardless of whether we're ever going to be an elder or not. And so, regardless of uh, who you are, uh, if you are a Christian, Uh, This sermon is for you. So that's our game plan for this morning. Uh, It's my appeal to why you should be paying close attention. Uh, But before we go any further, uh, let's just pause and ask God uh, for his help as we study his word. Father, we know that you sanctify your people through your word because your word is truth. And so we pray that you would use this sermon in the lives of your children That as we think about the qualifications of elders, whether we ourselves will ever be elders or not, uh, that you would conform each of us into the image of your son uh, using uh, these lists. Uh, We pray that you would grant to us grace that we might think rightly about your church and its leadership. uh, That our thoughts would be based uh, primarily on your word. and We ask for uh, the humility that we need to submit ourselves to your word we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, let me start with two kind of big picture observations that we have to understand before we get into any qualifications of elders Uh, first, is that ultimately it is God who appoints elders. Now, the qualifications are important, and we're going to talk about them in detail. Uh, But in the process of considering these things, We don't want to take the divine element uh, completely out of it and just make this into a completely human selection process. Look at Acts 20. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the elders at Ephesus and he says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Yes, they were appointed by men, but ultimately the men who did the appointing We're doing the will of God himself. Uh, We see this idea in Ephesians 4 also, which describes the pastor-teachers as gifts from Christ. And so ultimately, it's God who appoints elders. Now, in an elder-led congregational church, the process would be for uh, the elders to appoint elder candidates and then the congregation to have the final say in terms of approving them. And so there is that very human process involved. But when the church goes about that process biblically, according to God's word, like the potential elders under consideration are being biblically evaluated by the elders and biblically approved by the congregation according to those standards, well, in essence, right, God himself is working through that process. And so first, kind of big picture, Right? It is God who appoints elders, and really that should be no surprise to us because they are going to mediate his authority over his church. The second big picture thing that we need to understand before we talk about any qualifications is that elders should want to be elders. First Timothy 3.1 The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. When it comes to cleaning our home, uh, we, have a, we have a rule with the kids, uh, which is that if you are physically present, uh, you are qualified to clean. Now, if in addition to that qualification, like you aspire to clean, well, then you desire a noble task, right? That, that's great. I'm proud of you. But whether you want to clean or not is, is not relevant, right? Because in the case of cleaning the home, qualification equals participation. But that is not true for serving as an elder. Qualification does not necessarily equal participation. That is, if a man has a good reason to not want to do it, even if he's biblically qualified, he shouldn't do it. A man who begrudgingly serves as an elder, whether it's because of a a fear of saying no, or uh, maybe it's, I don't know, if I don't do it, uh, who's going to do it? Well, that's not only going to be unhelpful for the church, but it also goes against what God plainly states in his word, First Peter 5, 2. A shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. If a man is not doing it willingly and eagerly, well, I praise God that he's biblically qualified, but no, he should not be serving as an elder, Instead, he, used to, he, he should use the gifts that God has given him to uh, serve God faithfully in some other way. And so both aspiration and qualification are important and necessary. A qualified man who doesn't want to do it shouldn't be an elder. And a man who really desires it but is not qualified, well, he shouldn't be an elder either. So with that said, Let's now look at the qualifications themselves, and we're going to do this by kind of grouping them into two categories. First, we're going to look at what the elder must do, and then we're going to look at what the elder must be. And so first, there's two things that the elder must do, uh, two abilities, if you will. And the first is the ability to teach. First uh, Timothy 3, if you look at the end of verse 2, it says the elder must be able to teach. And then Titus 1 9 has it in more detail. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one just because we've spent so much time on preaching and teaching the last two weeks. But an elder must be able to teach. Now, does that mean that every, able, every elder must be able to uh, get up and uh, preach on a Sunday morning? I don't necessarily think so. Paul uh, makes a distinction between elders who preach uh, and teach regularly and those who don't. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, he talks about especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, and so an elder doesn't have to be the second coming of Charles Spurgeon or anything like that. Uh, but he must be able to teach. That is, he must know the word of God well. He must be able to clearly communicate its truths. Not only in uh, building up God's people in terms of teaching and counseling and exhortation, but also, as Titus makes clear, in defending the faith from false teaching. Now, given the importance of biblical preaching and teaching, again, what we've emphasized the last couple of weeks in the life of the church, you can see why this is a very, very important qualification. But also say this, I think sometimes uh, we can make too much of this one qualification over and against all the others. Uh, That is, we'll look at a guy who can teach the word. So, wow, that that guy can really communicate the Bible's truths clearly and well. And we'll automatically think that that man is elder qualified. Or we'll overlook other things, but not so fast. Remember, this is just one of many qualifications. And so if he's not a good husband, or he doesn't exercise self-control, or he's not gentle with others, or he loves money too much, well, it really doesn't matter if he can preach like Spurgeon, he shouldn't be an elder. A second ability that the elder must possess, and I use that term loosely here, is the ability to manage his home. 1 Timothy 3.4, he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Titus 1.6, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now that verse in Titus has caused some confusion because in our English Bibles, the first part seems to be saying that an elder's children must be saved. But that word, our believers, uh, that can also be translated, are faithful. Uh, and I think that's the better translation. Uh, because if that verse means that an elder's children must be believers, well, given what we believe about total depravity, right? It's like any time an elder's wife gives birth, it's like, oh, congratulations. It's a really cute baby, but you're disqualified, right? And you say, well... That's not talking about babies, that's only talking about older children having to be saved. Well then the natural follow-up question is how old do those unsaved kids have to become in order for the elder to be disqualified? And you can kind of see the issues that would be there. I think our faithful is better, not just because our believers causes problems, but look at how Paul actually defines what he means in the first part of verse 6, if we can get that verse back up, uh, with the second part of verse 6 Uh, his children are faithful, it means that they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is, they're not out of control. They're not disrespectful. They're not wild children who bring shame to the family. Uh, That word for debauchery in Titus, uh, that's actually used in Luke 15 when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. His lifestyle is described in that way. He squandered his property in reckless living, wild living that brought shame to his parents, that's the same word. I think that understanding is more consistent with the rest of the qualifications, uh, which, as we're going to see in a bit, are are more outward-facing and visible. Because your children standing before a holy God, that's not outwardly visible, especially when they're younger. It, It is really hard to see what is in their soul, but... Their outward behavior and conduct, that is very visible. And so it's also more consistent with the parallel, right? Look at 1 Timothy 3, 4. An elder must keep his children submissive. Again, that says nothing about the inward state of their souls that only speaks to their outward behavior. But why does it matter how an elder's children behave? I mean, think about it like I can't think of too many other professions in which I really care about the person's child's behavior. If I bring my car to the auto shop, like I don't really care how well-behaved my mechanic's kids are. I just want him to replace my brake pads. I'm going to a dentist, right? I'd much rather have a dentist whose kids are bad, but he's going to cause me minimal pain, than the dentist whose kids are Boy Scouts, but he's going to drill into the wrong tooth. But pastoring is different, And Paul tells us why, 1 Timothy 3, 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The idea here is that the household is like a little church. The household is not like a little auto shop or a little dentist's office, but the household is a little church. And so it's not the case that just because you can manage your own household well, you will necessarily care for the church well. But the inverse is true. If you cannot manage your household well, you cannot care for God's church well. It's basically an application of what Jesus said in Luke 16. He who is faithful over a little will be faithful over much. So an elder must be able to manage his home. His children should be well-disciplined, well-taught as he leads his family in spiritual matters. His children should be a good testimony uh, of how he leads his home. And so those are two like abilities, two things that the elder must be able to do. Right? He must be able to teach, and he must be able to manage his household. Which brings us now to the things that an elder must be. Uh, these are matters of character. So let me just start by reading the two lists. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 3. An overseer must be above reproach, The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In Titus 1, verses 6 through 8, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Before we go one by one through those lists, uh, let me make four general comments about these lists. First, you will notice that each of these two lists is introduced by the same statement that the elder must be above reproach. And Titus, he actually says it twice, uh, once in verse 6 and again in verse 7. And so clearly, right, both through its kind of primacy and position uh, and the repetition, Paul is signaling to us, like, this is important. He must be above reproach. But What does that mean? Well, of course, it doesn't mean that you never sin. If sinless perfection was the requirement, uh, nobody could be a pastor, Rather, it means that when someone looks at your life, there's nothing there that would bring a reproach, uh, which is shame or or dishonor or disgrace to God and the church. Like you can look at that person's life and uh, you can examine it, uh, but you're not going to find any allegations that you can kind of take hold of, uh, any like charges of sin that would stick to that person because the person lives in a straightforwardly godly way so that like an accusation or an allegation, it would be genuinely surprising because the person's reputation for integrity is strong. Uh, Sometimes you'll read in the news about some celebrity or whatever getting into some kind of trouble, and your immediate reaction because of their reputation is, well, that's not really that surprising. Uh, That's like the exact opposite of what it means to be above reproach. A person who's above reproach like When you think of that person, there's no like obvious shortcoming in character that immediately comes to mind. It's what one commentator calls irreproachable, observable conduct. And so you can think of being above reproach as like a summary statement of all of the other qualifications, right? which is why I think it comes before each and every one of the lists. And so the rest of the qualifications, in a sense, are like, Specific ways in which the elder is supposed to live above reproach. Like you want to be above reproach when it comes to quarrelsomeness or love of money or hospitality or self-control. And so if you remember last week I said that if you kind of had to summarize the function of an elder in one and only one word I said I would use the word shepherd. I think if you had to summarize the qualifications of an elder in two and only two words I would use above reproach because that seems to be what Paul says. Uh, The second general comment about the lists, number one is that kind of the summary statement is to be above approach. Uh, The second comment is that all of these qualifications consist largely of what is observable, what is visible and evident to others. And so you'll notice in the same vein that a lot of these qualifications have to do with our interactions with other people. Now it is true that All of these things, every sin, is ultimately an issue of the heart, right? Because that's where it all starts. And ultimately, that's what matters. Uh, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so really, who cares if you're qualified to be an elder, if you're not living rightly before the Lord? But given that this is a public office, uh, before people, over the church, the external things do matter. Reputation does matter. People can't see what's going on deep in your heart. They can see the visible manifestations of what's going on in your heart. And so you won't see in these lists uh, some of the sins that we might think of as being less visibly manifested. Like jealousy and envy, distrust in God, self-sufficiency. It's not that those sins are less important in the eyes of God— it's just that they're less visible in the eyes of man. And so general comment number two, these lists largely consist of what is observable. The third, I want you to notice that most of these qualifications are not absolutes as much as they are kind of like sliding scales. And so the question is not so much like lover of money, yes or no, where there's some kind of like arbitrary minimum threshold above which the elder must be, uh, the better question in evaluating that characteristic is, how clearly does this man show that he loves God more than he loves money? You see, that's a sliding scale as opposed to a yes-no. Quarrelsomeness: yes or no? Well, that's not really the question. It's how quarrelsome has this man shown himself to be? You get my point. Uh, like I said earlier, we're not looking for perfection on each of these sliding scales We're looking for men who, when we think about each of these characteristics, they're men who are above reproach, men whose character cannot be reproached along these lines. Fourthly, you should see these lists as being representative and not necessarily exhaustive. And so this is not like a checklist where you just kind of take the list and you kind of start checking off the boxes, check, check, check. Okay, we're good to go, elder qualified, as much as they are kind of painting the picture for us of what a spiritually mature man should look like. And so they're representative. They're not exhaustive. You might be surprised by some of the omissions from these lists. Like, you would expect to find that this elder qualified man is a man of prayer, because prayer is such an important part of being an elder. And there's nothing here about him reading his Bible, Uh, certainly you would never make a man an elder who does not read his Bible. You might say, well, that's kind of all included in uh, what Titus calls holy. That's true, but you see my point, right? Neither of these two lists is meant to be like an exhaustive checklist. And So with those four things in mind, right, the the lists uh, are describing what it means to be above reproach, uh, the lists focus on what is observable, uh, the characteristics on the lists. they should be viewed as sliding scales as opposed to a yes or no. And fourthly, these lists are representative, not necessarily exhaustive. Okay, now let's run through the lists. Uh, I tried to kind of group similar and overlapping qualifications from the two chapters together, uh, and in doing so, I came up with 10 distinct qualifications. If you're following along in your Bibles, I want you to follow along in First Timothy. And then we might flip back and forth to Titus to kind of cross-reference there. Uh, But we'll go in the order that Paul has in 1 Timothy. Uh, So number one, the elder must be the husband of one wife. That's in both lists, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, That's not a great translation. That's one of those translations that I think raises more questions uh, than it actually answers. Like, what does it mean to be the husband of one wife Uh, rather than give you all the different views right now, if you'd like to talk about it afterwards, I'd be happy to. Uh, Just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you my conclusion, which is that this term is referring to a man who, when it comes to matters of the opposite sex, uh, this man is faithful. He has a a reputation uh, for integrity. And so if he's married, uh, his affections are uh, only for his wife. His heart is only for his wife. Uh, He is a one-woman man. Uh, He is not known for being compromising or flirtatious in any way and if he's a single man and I don't think this precludes single men or widowers from uh, becoming elders remember that Paul himself was unmarried Uh, basically it's the same thing right he has a a good reputation when it comes to matters of the opposite sex The, the key question here is how does this man honor the Lord with regards to marriage and singleness and sexual purity the elder must be the husband of one wife. Second, he must be sober-minded and self-controlled. And I'm grouping those two from First Timothy together. I think they're similar in concept. And then Titus has self-controlled and disciplined, which again, we're just going to throw into this one big pot here. Uh, this is describing someone who, kind of in their thinking, in their mindset, is sober, is clear-headed. He is not, like, whimsically driven by impulses and desires. He's not given to excesses. He's got good judgment. He's got good control over himself. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So the elder must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and disciplined. A Third, he must be Respectable. In Titus, Paul says the elder must be upright and holy. I think all of these terms get at the man's conduct. Respectable and upright are more about his relationships with other people, right? Marked by honesty and marked by sincerity. And then holy would be referring to his relationship with the Lord. Again, marked by honesty and sincerity. In both cases, right, we're looking at how those relationships with men and with God how that manifests itself in terms of visible conduct. The elder must be respectable, upright, and holy. A fourth, he must be hospitable, and that's in both 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, this is one of those things that maybe the way that our modern church understands the word is not quite what the original authors intended. Uh, when we think of hospitality, right? someone being hospitable, We just think of someone who always has people in their home, and that's part of hospitality. Like certainly, uh, we should use our homes to God's glory, to bless His people. Absolutely. Uh, But the word in the Greek is philoxenos, right? Philos meaning love, and xenos, not to be confused with Uh, xenia. Xenos means foreigner or stranger. And so literally the word means love for strangers. And so back then, this would have expressed itself in kind of providing lodging and hospitality for traveling itinerant preachers. Uh, But hospitality is not just a love for your friends. Right? Even the Gentiles love those who love them. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Uh, Hospitality is more about extending yourself to Strangers, those whom you would not consider to necessarily be your friends. In the context of church gatherings, uh, it's greeting the newcomer, right? The person that you've never seen before, uh, loving the visitor, uh, reaching out to those uh, with whom you're not familiar. Or here's another way to put it. If the only kind of hospitality that you ever show is the kind of hospitality that is convenient and desirable for you, Well, then you have to wonder why Peter tells us that we ought to show hospitality without grumbling if the hospitality we show never causes us to be tempted to grumble. The elder must be hospitable. Uh, We'll skip over able to teach because we've already covered that under abilities. Uh, The fifth qualification in terms of character is not a drunkard. It's also in Titus. I think this one is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the elder should characterize Ephesians 5.18. Uh, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? Be controlled by the Spirit. The elder must not be a drunkard. And this actually starts a, a string of four negative statements in First Timothy, right? what an elder should not be. And so the sixth grouping is that an elder should be not violent, but gentle, Not quarrelsome. I'm kind of grouping those all together. And then from Titus, I'm going to take not quick-tempered and not violent, right? All into one big pot describing the elder. The elder must not be the kind of man who gets into arguments and conflicts. Uh, He must be one who is not contentious, not quarrelsome. Uh, Some translations say not a bully, right? He doesn't intimidate others. Uh, Rather, he's gentle, He should be known for this tender heartedness and graciousness and just reasonableness. And so he's like Jesus in that sense. Uh, He's uh, a bruised reed he will not break, uh, nor a smoldering wick will he quench. uh, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, I've seen some men defend their quarrelsomeness and uh, argumentativeness by saying, well, I'm standing for truth. I'm standing for what's right. I'm standing for what's biblical Those are good things, right, to stand for the truth. But the same Paul, the Apostle Paul, who always stood for truth, well, look what he says in 2 Timothy 2 the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the elder must be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not quick-tempered, and not violent. Seventh, he is not a lover of money. Titus says he's not greedy for gain. Uh, Jesus said it pretty plainly, you cannot love both God and money. The elder ought to be a man who loves God, and therefore the elder cannot be a man who loves money. And I think this is a particularly fitting qualification because there's a very clear connection in the Bible uh, between false teachers, right? those who should not be elders, and their love of money. Second Peter 2.1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then what are they going to do? Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So what is the motivation, the, the driving force behind their false teaching? It's a love of money. It's greed. And that association between false teachers and love of money, uh, that is unfortunately something we see in contemporary Christianity as well. Now, this one, admittedly, is a little bit harder to see in other people. right? Because it's not like we have access to each other's bank statements uh, or credit card bills. Uh, we can't just like financially audit each other. So how are we going to see this? Well, we talk about what we love, don't we? So what does the man like to talk about? And we worry about that which we love. And so what does the man worry about? The elder must not be a lover of money. Uh, the next two were just in Titus. Uh, so Titus 1-7, number 8 on our list. Uh, the elder is not arrogant. Uh, another translation is he's not overbearing. Basically, the elders should not be self-willed and stubborn, uh, demonstrated in how they treat uh, and interact with other people. Uh, do they always need to get their way? Uh, do they always assert themselves? Do they never listen to others and ride roughshod over people? It's kind of like how the apostle John describes uh, this guy Diotrephes in Third John. Uh, he describes him as uh, one who likes to put himself first. Well, the elder, in contrast, ought not to be arrogant. Uh, 1 Peter 5.3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The elder must be not arrogant. Ninth, he must be a lover of good. That's from Titus 1.8. Uh, not a lover of money, but a lover of good. Uh, sometimes we think of these qualifications as uh, just a list of things that would disqualify someone. Uh, but the absence of evil... Is not necessarily the presence of good and godliness. And so Paul adds here that an elder must be a lover of good. He loves goodness. He loves what God loves. He loves to see the fruit of the Spirit working in God's church, because the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. The elder must be a lover of good. Number 10, uh, this now is from 1 Timothy 3:6. Uh, he must not be a new convert. For Timothy 3, six. he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Uh, admittedly, this one's a little bit different than the other nine in the sense that the other nine were uh, kind of clearly moral characteristics. And this one's just more about time in the Lord. But you can see how Paul links it to a moral characteristic, right, that of pride because he warns against making a man who is relatively young in the faith into an elder because of the potential pitfall of pride and conceit. He must not be a recent convert. If you have been a Christian for long enough, you know exactly why this is a really wise qualification. Because you've seen that guy get radically saved. He's full of zeal and passion, and he's just serving at every opportunity he can get. And he can teach the Bible with that same zeal and that same passion. And you look at a man like that, and you say, that man is an elder. Look at the gifts that God has given him. Well, maybe, but not yet. He must not be a recent convert. The Bible says that we should let him get tested, right, through seasons of ups and downs. Uh, Maybe go through a couple of seasons in which his zeal is not as strong, right? He doesn't feel as passionate. Let him continue to serve the Lord faithfully through those seasons. Let him demonstrate, right? We should be thinking parable of the sower here. Uh, Let him demonstrate that he is not just that seed that fell on rocky ground that springs up but has no roots, Like we said last week, the scriptures are clear. We should not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Rather, we should give men room to develop their character, their gifting towards spiritual maturity. So let's put this all together here. You've got the two things that the elder must be able to do. He's got to be able to rightly handle the word of truth, and he's got to be able to manage his children. The ten things that the elder must be. Uh, He's got to be a one-woman man who is faithful to his wife. He's got to be self-controlled and disciplined. He's got to be respectable in his conduct. Hospitable. Not a drunkard. Not quarrelsome but gentle. Not a lover of money. Not arrogant, right? He doesn't put himself first all the time. A lover of good. And he's not a new convert. And it's important uh, that elders be men who meet all of these qualifications and requirements because, as we said at the beginning, they've got to be men who are above reproach. Right? The leaders of the church, uh, through their lives, uh, should not bring reproach and shame to the gospel. But to look at it from a just slightly different angle, it's also important that elders be men who have all these qualifications because their lives are supposed to be examples for the congregation. That is part of their leading, part of what they're called to do, is to model what it looks like to be spiritually mature along these qualifications. And so look at Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, your elders, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Think about how they live above reproach along, these, along the lines of these lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and then you ought to imitate their faith. So elders should be living their lives in a way that the congregation can look to them as examples. First uh, Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders should be examples, models for their congregations. And congregations should look to imitate their elders as they imitate Christ. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs once put it, I love this, we must one day give an account to God, not only for what sermons we have heard, but for the examples of those amongst whom we have lived. And so it's not just the pastor's sermons that should be shaping your life, it's also The pastor's example that should be shaping your life. Uh, We must all live as examples for one another, but that's especially true of those whom God has called to be elders of his church. So let me close now with four application points. Uh, If what we've said about elders and their qualifications, if that's biblical and that's true, well, how shall we then live? Application point number one pray for elders. Pretty straightforward, I think. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one. Uh, I am just asking you, dear church, to pray for elders uh, that God would grant to our church elder qualified men. Remember that elders, right? pastors, they're Christ's gift to the church. And so we need to pray, pray that God would raise up elders from our body who would exemplify these characteristics from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Application point number two is to pick one characteristic. Uh, like I said earlier, these qualities, these characteristics that we've talked about this morning, uh, these are things for which every single Christian in this room ought to be like, aspiring. But I think sometimes you can fall into the trap right, of, of reading a long list like this, like the one in 1 Timothy uh, or the one in Titus. Just kind of reading a long list and just thinking in general terms. Like, yeah, I I need to pursue spiritual maturity. Well, that's good, but I think it's more helpful for us to be just a little bit more specific. And so my application is to pick one characteristic of spiritual maturity that we've talked about. Like one of the ten things. One elder qualification that you especially recognize that you need to grow in. And in this next season of your Christian life, I want you to really focus on that one aspect of your walk. Uh, Maybe it's self-control. Maybe it's greed. uh, Maybe you see in yourself uh, arrogance. It's not that you're going to neglect everything else, but it's just you're going to be really intentional about pursuing holiness in this one particular aspect. And so you're going to study the scriptures on it. And you're going to pray about it. And you're going to seek counsel on it. And you're going to ask for accountability on it. You are genuinely going to uh, seek to grow in this one aspect of your walk. And so that's my challenge in application point number two, is just pick one characteristic. Don't get lost in the sea of these qualifications. Pick one, hone in on it, and ask for God to grow you in that aspect. Application point number three is to rightly balance online ministries. Given the emphasis of the scriptures on the biblical qualifications of elders, given the exhortation from Hebrews 13 that congregations should imitate the examples of their leaders as their elders live out these qualifications, I just think we as believers need to be a little more careful and wise about how we interact with online ministries. Uh, We, the 21st century church, right, we have a blessing that no generation in church history has ever had before. Like we have, uh, because of the internet, right, we have access to limitless sermons. Like, I'm not even talking about the trash that's out there, like the the false teaching and the heresy and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like good, biblical, sound teaching. Uh, There is more that you can access with just a few clicks than you could possibly listen to in a lifetime. But there is a danger there too that is a great blessing. But there is a danger there too that we ought to be aware of and careful of, uh, because it's so easy to listen to sermons online, and because there's so many good sermons out there, well, we can begin to separate that one particular function of the elder, his preaching and his teaching, from everything else, right, that he does in his ministry context. And even more importantly, like who he is. And that's not to say that we should not listen to sermons online. Uh, I personally have benefited much in my own walk and in my own ministry from listening to guys outside of my church. I'm just saying that we need to be on guard for potential pitf- pitfalls. Uh, first and foremost, right, we need to make sure that those online voices, those sermons that we can listen to, uh, they never become a substitute. For the regular gathering of God's people. There's this all too common idea that just kind of staying home and listening to so-and-so online, well, that's going to substitute, that's going to replace gathering with the people of God and sitting under the word of God with the people of God. But that can't be. We also need to make sure that online voices don't drown out the influence of those whom God has appointed to be our spiritual authorities that is, our own pastors in our own local church. We also need to be sure that following online ministries, again, as faithful and as sound as they might be, that following those ministries doesn't hinder us from effectively serving in the context of our own local church. We need to make sure that online followings don't become uh, breeding grounds for uh, undue criticism, Or even discontentment with your own church, uh, why doesn't my pastor preach like him? I don't think that's a really fair question. I think the better question is does my pastor preach biblically and faithfully? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? So, application point number three rightly balance online ministries. Application point number four is to look to Christ. Dear church, uh, look to Christ. Uh, I have preached for a very long time today, but at the end of the day, like my job, my sole job is to get you to look to Christ. Uh, It would not be a good thing if you left this sermon and you left only looking at yourself. Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to mature? Where do I fall short? So let me finish by just exhorting you to look to Christ, uh, the good shepherd the chief shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the one who in his humanity perfectly fulfilled every single requirement that we've talked about this morning. Never did a man live so perfectly above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He was not a drunkard. He was not violent. He was gentle. He was not quarrelsome. He was not a lover of money. He was the model for all husbands in how he loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. In a word, as God incarnate, Jesus was perfect. And because of what he did on the cross, right, dying in our place, taking our sin upon himself, and suffering the wrath of God that we deserve, and in an exchange, giving us his perfect righteous record. Now, all who call upon him, we can have his perfection. We can have that perfect record and so be fit for heaven. And so just put aside elder qualifications for a moment. Because of Christ's imputed righteousness, uh, we are qualified for heaven. And So if you are not a Christian and you are here today, I exhort you to look to Christ. Repent and believe today that He died for sinners like you uh, to pay for your sin and to make you righteous. Uh, You too can be saved today. And if you are a Christian, my exhortation is exactly the same. It's to look to Christ. Look to the one who, because of his finished work, even with all of the ways in which we fall short, we've been made perfectly righteous in the eyes of a holy God. And so, dear church, Look to Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for the depth of your word and how your word gives us everything that we need that we might bring you glory here on this earth. Father, we pray for our church. We pray for every member of our church that we would seek and strive to grow in holiness uh, in these aspects, that we would be more like Christ each and every day, uh, driven by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray specifically that you would raise up elder qualified men in our midst. And Father, we pray for those uh, in this room who do not know you, that they too would look to Christ, and that they would find salvation uh, for their souls in uh, our great Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.